Hi everyone, and welcome to the Y2 Podcast, where I interview interesting and noteworthy people to learn about their journeys and specifically look to understand their beliefs, values, mindsets, and the resources they use to get started and succeed on their journey. I'm your host, Dustin Elliott, and today's guest is Brendan McKittrick. Now, Brendan comes to us on the podcast as a different type of guest. He doesn't come to talk about his corporate or entrepreneurial experience, but but rather as a black belt in the martial art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, having competed across the world and grappling with some of the biggest names in the fight sport industry. He's competed in and won some big events, including multiple Australian state and national championships, Arnold Classic, Grappling Tournaments Australia, meddling at the Asian Open, silver at the NAGA World Championships in Philadelphia, and is an Abu Dhabi Pro World competitor, IBJJF, and Masters World competitor, to name just a few. Now, as you probably know by now on the show, I'm a big proponent of thematic learning, that is, taking lessons and learnings from seemingly unrelated concepts and implementing them to your own life, and that's what this interview is really all about. I think that sport is a beautiful analogy and a distillation of the same set of skills and attributes that a range of many of the show's guests have cultivated and Brenton's achieved through his pursuit of his passion of a sport. In this episode, Brenton provides his take on cultivating self-awareness, he shares his own personal insights into the psychological challenge he faced during his quest to earning a black belt, and the physical and intellectual properties of the sport and the subsequent learnings that are applicable to everyday life. It takes a few minutes for us to get warmed up, but once we set the stage for Brendan's history, we dive really deep into his story and all the wisdom he's developed through years as a professional athlete. That being said, let's get to today's show. Brenton, welcome to the Y2 Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dustin. Appreciate it. My, I have to admit, I'm really excited for today's chat, and we've we've had a lot of we've had a lot of really interesting discussions. I think of probably the person I've had some of the deepest, most profound conversations with over the last year. It's mostly involved you, and usually we've had a beer in our hand to go through <laughs> that. Um, obviously, I'm I'm a real student of the human condition, and I think that's really what I'm trying to do out of the Y2 Podcast. But one thing that I think is really important and a lot of people ask me about you know what type of guests would I have on the show and inherently it would be a lot of people who are in noteworthy positions in business or entrepreneurs or that sort of thing but for me it's bigger than that and that's why I wanted to have you on as a as people know through the bio a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete because the the thematic learnings out of your, your pursuit as an athlete and obviously the things you've gone through and competing in competitions, I think are something that is, it, it's so easily transferable into whatever we happen to do with our lives and that it doesn't, doesn't have to be necessarily people in business or entrepreneurship who we can learn from. It's also people just pursuing a range of different things in their life. And in this case, obviously yours is jujitsu. And uh, I've no doubt today's conversation, we're going to get really into the weeds. I said, I know you're a student of the human condition as well. You're a very, very smart guy. So I'm really looking forward to obviously a lot of the, the insights and the journeys that we're going to go on through today's conversation. So thanks again for your time today. Thank you very much. Honored to be on your podcast. Mate, I'm, uh, we, I know we, we were talking about this quite a while ago as well too. <laughs> We've had a lot of conversations about podcasts and I know you've got your own. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later yep. on. But I suppose just to get the ball rolling today, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about your your um, your, your gaming username. So I think uh, <laughs> we'll talk about a little later. You're quite the gamer, but maybe just tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah, um, I've got quite an eclectic set of interests. Um, I think I'm a bit of a contradiction in many ways, but <laughs> um, yeah, so gaming username has had a lot of silly ones, but one of the ones we are just discussing before this podcast started was when I was uh, really, really into my gaming phase, particularly uh, my competitive phase. So I was playing a video game called Defense of the Ancients, um, abbreviated with the acronym of DOTA, D-O-T-A. Um, I found uh, playing that game online, a strategy game, five on five, I've um, been playing it for a number of years and got to a level where I was very competitive. So I started playing at land cafes, playing in some tournaments, and my username was Ramen Bowl because um, I loved the anime series <laughs> called Naruto, and he was always obsessed with eating ramen and um, dining on it, and I loved Japanese culture, and I thought, you know, when I was prompted one day to create a username, I thought, oh, I'll just go with Ramen Bowl because I'm obsessed with Naruto, I love ramen, and that'll do. Um, so I made the, 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 the username Ramen Bowl, and so as I started competing, um, I'd be in these tournaments and I got to a pretty high level at the time in the scene of Dota in Australia in Melbourne and so I started playing tournaments, won a heap of matches and had a bit of a reputation online locally um, for my ability in this particular game and I just remember after a few tournaments and even funny enough you know being at the age of 8 to 19 at the time people in nightclubs um, I had a few people come up to me and say, oh, you know, so-and-so is my friend. And they told me that you're ramen bowl. But like, <laughs> I'm really surprised because you're white. Um, I expected you to be Korean. So I just always thought that was a sort of funny way to be known as is the, the Korean guy that's not really Korean. Yeah. So, which, which could not be, yeah, completely does not represent me at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as I love to, we'll, we'll, we'll get back into video games a little bit mm-hmm. later on. Because there's obviously, there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting stories coming out of that. But Probably the where we talked about before, really, really where I want to start. Obviously, today's journey and, and is to go back and yep. and probably way back before most of the guests I'll really explore into. And really Sounds like about, one of my psychology sessions. Absolutely, but I'm gonna lay on this couch and you know, hundred dollars an hour. So, but just to go back and talk a bit about your your childhood because you your childhood was a bit more um, through some challenges. I yep. suppose had a lot of kids probably didn't really go through. And love if you can just start tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a country town um, called Wandong to start with, when I, up until I was about nine years old, ten years old. Um, moved to Queensland for my dad's work uh, for about two years, or actually to be exact, two years, one month, five days, which because my mom absolutely hated it up there. So <laughs> <laughs> she reminded us every day of what day we're up to when we we're there. Um, so following that, um, the lifestyle didn't really work out up there for the family. We moved back down to uh, Seymour for about a year and then uh, Kilmore. So I moved back down. Um, they, these are all suburbs, country towns north of Melbourne. So I spent uh, probably the majority of my childhood in Kilmore um, for high school. So I got a scholarship to the Kilmore International School. So we ended up making the decision to move to Kilmore. Um, it's a very quiet town, only a few thousand people if that. Um, pretty much just a town plotted on the long, along the <laughs> highway on the way to Sydney, on the Hume Highway. So yeah, I grew up in Kilmore, um, went to an international school, um, did the IB program, so it was a very academic school and I never really, f- um, I, was always, I always did very well academically but I didn't, I don't know, I always felt like my drive, my interests were a lot different so I didn't really exactly fit in with a sort of purely academically mindset as I had a huge interest in sport but I also had an interest in intellectual activity so um, yeah, from there, um, don't know where else you'd like me to go with that. <laughs> No, absolutely. So, um, I suppose growing up, um, as always we talked about, as we just said, yeah. you were quite the gamer as well too. Yep. Where did that sort of interest come, come out of or come from? 
Uh, I think my parents brought our household up on, they, they actually really embraced computers. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously saw at the time, or listened to some wise people that computers were going to be the way of the future. So they thought as early as possible, introduce the children to computers. So probably from about age, I feel like maybe from about age six, seven or eight, I could touch type. So I was mm-hmm. always on a computer and I was fascinated with um, how computers worked. I really liked trying to understand, uh, I guess, the back end of it. Um, never really got... To, um, too deep into the coding aspect of it, but I really found it interesting just to explore, you know, how computers are used and and the gaming aspect of that. As the machine had a hub, well, as a hub, offered a lot of games, and so I'd you know play everything I could then, and then mm. you know being interested in dragons and dungeons and all things, <laughs> all, kids are, all the monsters and stuff. I was playing video games from yeah. there. Did you do a lot of that just because again you're growing up in a in a small community and just not having a lot of other things to do? I think um, reflecting on it now, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that. Um, I would classify myself if it's even a real definition as an extroverted introvert. Mm. I love socializing, I love being around people, but I do find a definition of introvert that, that really sticks with me is that as an introvert, you draw on energy from yourself in a social setting, whereas an extrovert can draw on the energy of others. Mm. So I can find social settings, um, particularly like I, I get my fix pretty quick. After a few hours, mm. I'm like, good, mm. ready to go, can move on to something else. Uh, otherwise, I find it pretty draining. So I found like computers, I was always a very independent um, person and I just loved to, as a kid, I would be running out in the field, literally playing army soldiers or monsters and battling beasts of the universe in my own head and (laughs) running around. As a child does. Yeah, Yeah, exactly as a child does, but I could be content doing that all day. And with computer games, I found I could just sit down and obsessively do something and invest a lot of time in it and just have fun and that, that in itself is quite a reflection of who I am as a person because I've, I find that whatever I like to do, I become very obsessive mm. with it, I become immersed in it and I really enjoy that process of mastering things so it's very easy for me to find an interest and become sucked into it and want to know as much as I can about it and continue that path. Mm. So I remember you told me a story a while back of when you were first starting to game that mm. you, you, your competitiveness, you, I don't think you said you ever really thought of yourself as a competitive person, yeah. you can identify with that. But where it started to manifest itself was in terms of I think the game you were playing, whether it be the game you mentioned or another one, I'm not sure. But it, there was a ranking system to it. So it was very clear who's number one and you weren't number one. And you went on a bit of a uh, bit of an exploration there, didn't you? Yeah, so I played Dota, this Defense of the Ancients game, quite competitively. But also proceeding uh, simultaneously, I, was, I probably lost several years of my life to it. But I played a game <laughs> called Diablo 2. And it actually taught me quite a, bit, quite a lot about life at, at that point in time. It taught me a lot about economics and markets because as I, the game had an online currency and I became quite obsessed with how people negotiated and traded these items, these virtual, re, mm-hmm. you know, these virtual items in this world. And I became quite good at it and negotiating and being able to ascertain a price of something and being mm-hmm. able to investigate and research the demand that's available and being able to understand, okay, how much can I sell this for? And I became quite profitable and as a 16-year-old, um, I actually made a few thousand dollars off this game because on the side I was generating an income with it uh, and as a kid from, you know, I didn't have, outside of that I virtually didn't have a dollar in my pocket until I was mm. 19, uh, 18, 19 started working for myself. Um, so I was really drawn I guess to that competitive side where in this game it had a player versus player feature of it and you know there's always a debate of who's the best and I just became obsessed with looking at the data and calculating how I could make this character I created in this virtual world as powerful as possible mm-hmm. um, and I just really enjoyed that process of just research, investigating, analyzing and these were just things I learned later in life that really draw on like a natural um, instincts of mine. Yeah, do you know where that came from? Was that something your parents fostered or somebody else in your life sort of fostered that sort of 
that thought pattern, if you will, or do you know where you kind of got that interest from of not just not just playing yeah. the game, going out and you know conquering questing and whatever <laughs> sort of thing, but being able to like break it down and be a bit more analytical and trying to go, okay, how can I not just do well, but how can I do like really really well? Like yeah, look, funny enough, I I don't really see that. Um, I guess exhibited or exemplified in my parents because a lot of these traits that we we're discussing um, manifested themselves independently in me when and they, might, they might have drawn on perhaps sort of generic um, qualities but I was left to my own devices a lot and being able to just sit in front of a computer screen and write. And I always loved from a very young age being able to, to write and draw and you know these and I liked I guess the lifestyle to some degree I liked my own solitude I liked being by myself and yeah. I liked just doing things and being immersed in them so when it came to you know competitions and stuff like that these were things that just manifested themselves uh, I guess naturally mm, mm, interesting so um, so you grew up in the small town now you then went off to university didn't you yes criminology was it yeah so I as a kid I mean I've my my mum always joked about this. I could never really make a decision on anything. Um, you know, she always used to say, "Oh, you know, you're a typical Libran." So I never subscribed to astrology or anything. But <laughs> but I guess when you look up the definition, it, it is a um, a very black and white picture of me. Um, in that, I remember through international baccalaureate program, which was in Australia, we have a VCE, but this is an internationally recognised program. And based what it is, is it's a two year program for your final two years of high school. We decide six subjects, and you know those are subjects that you essentially um, you pursue and allow you into a university. I think um, in the two-year program, I ended up changing all my subjects for the <laughs> second year and I basically tried everything because yeah. I couldn't decide on what I wanted to do. It was a very long road for me of self-discovery of knowing what I want to do and you know whether I'm there yet or even getting close, who knows, but at least I'm yeah, getting some, some inkling of it. <laughs> um, and I decided for university, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to do psychology, criminology, or computer science. Mm. Uh, and so what I ended up learning about was there was something called forensic psychology, which was the marriage and harmony of psychology and criminology uh, that investigated the, I guess, the psychosocial aspects of, cr of crime and the motivations behind why people would uh, commit a crime. Mm. Now, obviously, it's quite particular, and I know that kind of foreshadows into, obviously, your, your pursuit of psychology. We'll talk a little bit later down the road. But yep. just pausing there for a sec at all, obviously, that, that, that seems to be very particular in terms of that pursuit of the, the psychology aspect mm. at least. So do you remember, was there any particular thing that, or any particular time you started to become aware of that being uh, an interest of something you would actually want to pursue amongst all these other things? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I've always been infatuated with um, behavioral psychology and th these were terms I wasn't really obviously aware or familiar of until a lot later in my life, but I was always fascinated and felt that um, at least I had a better than average ability to um, read emotions and I guess I later learned this was emotional intelligence. Um, read emotions and sort of being able to interact with people and sort of understand uh, at a face value I guess people's um, behavior and characteristics and and I was always very interested in studying people and like how and why they do things and this is why I find it really interesting that you're doing this podcast called <laughs> The Why Too because it's also very, you know, it's a deeply seated interest in myself. Um, uh, and I'm immensely fascinated with why people choose to do things and how they choose to do things and being someone that had a lot of ups and downs in my life about when it came to my own personal conquests, I later looked to life as to why people did things and how they found motivation and how they found the discipline to do things and you know, were these the principal factors to success? Mm. And so I remember watching a movie, um, I think it was a Bruce Willis movie called The Color Red and it, it's about a psychologist who 
he has one of his patients commit suicide, jumps out of the window, and as a result of the trauma, he can no longer see the color red. Mm. Now, that's just the very basic premise of it, and it you know, leads into a sort of a pretty B-grade, in my opinion, um, <laughs> <laughs> crime thriller movie, yeah. but, I th- but, but it really captured me that uh, the role of a psychologist is to help, is to understand the mind to some degree and understand people's problems and to be able to help them navigate that and to arrive at a solution because me as a person, I always felt myself so challenged by myself. Um, you know, the case in point being I couldn't choose the, um, you know, A or B because mm-hmm. I, would, I would always be thinking of the million possibilities that could happen in either path and how I could pen- potentially succeed or fail in either one of those mm-hmm. and I'd be so overwhelmed with all these choices that I could never arrive at one. So were you sort of then looking at other people and in and, and, and that pursuit of others in terms of trying to understand a uh, their decision-making system to then try to implement into your own life or a decision-making yeah. system? I, I do believe that at some point my motivation there was that if I could better understand and help people, then I'd probably be able to better understand myself. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to scratch your own itch essentially yeah, by ex- trying to understand other people. So Exactly. Yeah. No, look, I think that's a, that's a journey I certainly know we've had a couple yep. of discussions about, and that's something I think myself, I'm very much the same way as well too. I think um, as I was growing up, um, I'd always had an interest in, and I think as I used to say, I'm always interested in what why do people do what they do mm-hmm. and all those different aspects of it and even so much so that when I went into university um, I looked at the the plethora of subjects and probably should have gone into psychology but yeah. ended up going into human resources because it was a very particular aspect of why do people do what they do and how mm-hmm. do you, how to shape and build constructs and have conversations around structuring it to okay how do I make you how do I help you be happier at work? How do I help you be more productive at work? How do I help you be more fulfilled at work? And all mm. those sorts of things in a very work-based context. So it's, yeah, I think, and I think I was doing that a lot too because it was helping me to help understand what made me happy and what made yeah. me fulfilled and what did I like and why and trying to put those structures in place because otherwise I was, yeah, probably fishing around a little bit as well too, so. Absolutely, I mean, you find that psychology uh, underpins so many facets of business, um, society and uh, to, you know, upon reflection, I'm happy I didn't elect to go down the path of being an actual psychologist. Mm. But at the same time, I have a very strong interest and passion for psychology. And, you know, that's an interest that's aside. But the actual practice of psychology as a pure psychologist is not a path I'd like to take. But nevertheless, I still study it. Um, in that exact clinical sort of setting, for me, it, it wouldn't appeal to me because it would be at least how I, f- I feel like the modality of it would be far too repetitive. Um you know, having having my clients booked one after the other um, mm. in a sort of a you know in a typical sort of day structure, I feel like I I far more enjoy being immersed in a single topic that can you know take a day or several days or hours, um, and really get really really deep with something. Mm. So as a kid growing up and and starting to uncover that that interest in psychology, mm. was there anything any other resources or anybody anything you looked in particular through those early early parts of the years to define the study and actually start to understand what it what it actually was? Well, to be honest, I I had it whilst I had an interest in psychology, I hadn't quite researched it as much as as much as I could have or should have. So it was only when it was it was probably more post university that I mm. really started to go a lot deeper with psychology and get into some serious obsessions with different authors and obviously one of the most defining ones for me was Maxwell Maltz when he wrote that book, The New Psychosybenetics, which was just um, absolutely pivotal for me in my life and how I negotiate my own feelings and understand that my own inner monologue. So mm. that was p- perhaps something that later on in life. Um, 
earlier was more it was more about the, the teen angst mm. and, and, trying, <laughs> and trying to negotiate those the, those issues yeah absolutely being being young and trying to figure yourself out and absolutely why are you doing that yeah, yeah. so so your um so your your uh your criminology degree so how what was that journey like then for yourself as you started to unravel this sort of um you know curiosity in, in the human psyche yeah sure so what i did find about criminology initially and what it attracted to me was that um, investigating the why again like in the investig- investigative process of it was what I found so interesting um, and more about I, I guess I had I developed an interest in why we even have simple things like uh, prisons and infrastructure for placing people for uh, as offenders um, I thought the whole thing was a complete contradiction to society and mm-hmm. that we were putting we were moving people from society um, under the guise of rehabilitation in order to put them with other like-minded criminals or not even like-minded criminals of people who have very negative views on society who will only continue to help teach, foster and perpetuate these you know, these negative notions of the world. And I always found that to be a complete contradiction that we would remove people from, from the world and place them in these isolated zones only to help you know, foster these worse and negative um, afflictions. So I, whilst I found that interesting, I, uh, to be honest, at the end of my criminology degree, I, I was sort of left a little bit stumped because I had pursued, uh, you know, a double major in criminology and psychology, and I even did a minor in creative writing, which was always an interest. Hmm. But at the end of it, I thought, well, what's next? Mm-hmm. Um, I basically got myself through uni, asking a lot of questions of myself um, and wondering where I wanted to go with my life, um, only to arrive at the end of a university degree and not have any clearer answers. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So what did you do after that then? So what was your, how did you sort of go about answering those questions over that next phase? So upon graduating, I thought that I would, I, I'd started to develop a serious belief in myself and I was far more confident. I thought, look, I'll get myself involved in any kind of big organization. I'll be able to work my mm. way up and really find the answer there. So I joined a company called UGL, which um, has a lot of engineering and asset management services. Um, straight out of university, landed a job there. Um, in the facilities management industry and started really work my way up quite quickly in that industry and um, yeah, continued until here I am today. Mm. So in terms of your, obviously, uh, being being a being an athlete is something I was able to mm-hmm. talk a lot about and obviously that dominates a huge part of your, your life. Yeah. In terms of, obviously, we'll talk about um, how you got into it in a second, but what did you do in terms of athletic prowess before that? I mean, obviously, you've got this in, this this real focus on the, psych, the psychological aspect of it in terms of an athlete beforehand or, or um, you know, any precursor to choosing a martial arts um, uh, pursuit. Was there any sort of thing before that or, or that sort of before that to kind of help draw context in that next Yeah, part? yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've always... As a kid and even adult, I've always been fascinated. I've always been obsessed with play. Like I love play. I love games, um, whether it's board games, video games, um, you know, physical games like football and soccer and everything. Um, so I was always playing something. I was always involved in sport. I was always running around as a kid. Had a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a teenager, um, I really got into weightlifting and going to the gym and bodybuilding to a degree. And so I was playing a lot of soccer and a lot of weightlifting. And then I was I saw a um, Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC, um, a number of fights, and some of the best of. And I saw that like one of the most successful, the most successful martial art in the early days, and you know, arguably for a large um, majority of the UFC, was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And as an art, considered the gentle art, the champion was able to subdue his opponents without necessarily having to 
um, exact a lot of force and mm. damage upon the opponent. You know, they're able to restrain them through submissions and chokeholds and arm locks and um, techniques to restrain and debilitate the opponent without necessarily having to severely hurt them. Mm. And I found that fascinating because I always liked wrestling. I always liked just, um, I liked every opportunity to wrestle with my mates and you know tackle them. Um, I would jump at. And I remember in high school, we had a few, uh, had a bit of an underground fight club where... <laughs> for sure, fight club, we don't talk about fight yeah, club. Yeah, so I feel like there's a 10-year clause for that, so <laughs> we're well past expiry. Um, and yeah, I became, I was just really infatuated with fighting, but not the violent aspect of mm. it. Like, I really liked the, the physical and intellectual properties of grappling and being able to out-wrestle and out-maneuver an opponent without necessarily having to hurt them. I tried out Muay Thai for a while, um... And I liked it, but it just didn't intellectually stimulate me enough to keep me in it because I found it very repetitive. Um, and for a lot of people, the pure physical joy of perhaps releasing energy and hitting something is very rewarding. But for me, I found it repetitive. I found hitting a bag and practicing similar sort of drills like that to to just be, for, at least for me, I just it just didn't stimulate me. It didn't keep mm. me going. And I and I probably from an age of about 14, 15, I'd seen those UFC fights and had really, really wanted to get into jiu-jitsu. But living in a country town, I just didn't have access to it. Um, we had a few, we had a karate school that opened up that I went and had a look at, but just, it just, again, it just didn't appeal to me. It just seemed too theoretical. It just seemed like far too many principles and far too many notions of it were promoted without much evidence to support it or without much, you know, nothing to really support the claim. It'd be very um, prescriptive, like if this guy, if this person comes up to you and does this and does that, then you're going to do this and that. Whereas Real life is far more dynamic and there are far too many variables and mm. um, to sort of be able to replicate these exact scenarios. Like there may be certain categories of scenarios that will occur and eventuate in life, but the exact details of how they, how they arise and how they come to be are always going to be just constantly in a state of flux. It's always going to be different. Mm. So I sort of, uh, I feel like I'm actually getting into how I started Jitsu, but... No, go with it, go with it. Yeah. yeah um, did you get into it? <laughs> so eventually um, I... As a as a nineteen year old, I I went and explored it. I saw that I moved out uh, moved out to the city for university. Um, one of the first things I did was to look at if there's a jiu-jitsu school. When I found one, I think I did about two or three weeks of it, and I I was quite I felt like I was quite naturally good at it. Like I was holding my own really well against people who've been doing it for six to twelve months. Some of the people have been doing it longer. I was I was not an easy um, we call it a roll, which is like our sparring sessions, but one on one sparring. Um, in the, in the roles, I I found I, I was holding myself quite well. Um, I was quite naturally athletic. Um, so do and you think you you well at it because you're athletic? Because you're naturally athletic aspect, or was there another factor at play which to help you? Well, I think for me, it was the far exceeded the physical cap, uh, capacity of it. For me, it was um, more of a a I loved the sport. I loved it. I was infatuated with it, and I was obsessed with it. And the things I become interested in, I find I I tend to just immerse myself in completely become mm. obsessive with it. I was watching any footage I could find online. I was getting DVDs. I was getting looking at competition footage. I was looking at everything and all the little details of the jitsu um, competitors and athletes at the highest level. Uh, and just I, I, some days I'd spend like six to ten hours just watching DVDs and instructionals and trying to assimilate all the knowledge I could from it. Um, later learned that a lot of my learning practices there were flawed, but mm. you know I would throw myself into it like that. Do you have any inklings as to why you were why you became so obsessive with it so early on? I guess I've always been motivated to, and no matter what I do, I have a very, very strong competitive drive. Um, I have an urge to become the best I can possibly be at something. However, at, whilst a lot of people I, in my life I've experienced become somewhat threatened by that, 
Um, I, I don't feel like I'm one of the competitive people that would, uh, I don't chuck a fit. I don't, I don't have a silk if I lose. Mm. In fact, I'm actually quite motivated when something, someone's better than me at something. So for video games, I actually really enjoy, like I really enjoy like not being the best at something um, and pretty much not the best at anything really. But um, whilst I'm, I have that strong urge to become better than someone, I actually just enjoy the thrill of competition. Like, um, you know, just knowing if someone's better than me at them, at the, it becomes a challenge, it becomes a task and a conquest to overcome them and their ability mm. uh, and proceed with that. Yeah, but I think you, you talked about a story that when you first started getting into jiu-jitsu, you're, it didn't, you weren't, even though you had that, there was obviously, there was some other aspects yeah. of your personality which were contrary to that as well too, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I, uh, coming, back, coming back a little bit now, I, when I first started doing jiu-jitsu, I did it for three weeks and I I got talked into doing a competition. Everyone said, oh, look, just do a com- competition. You'd be, you know, look, you're really tough. You'd be awesome at it. And I thought, oh, all right, geez, I'm ready for competition after three weeks. This is mm. ridiculous. And I got destroyed. My first fight, I remember I walked out of the adrenaline dump of competing, mm. not knowing what even to expect, not even knowing the rules, not even knowing. I remember, I remember asking, I don't actually know any submissions. And the jiu-jitsu match is, is decided by a submission. You win when you submit the other person. Um, there, there are time limits and there are points awarded, but those things, are, the system's generally geared towards the person who's most likely to succeed or dominate the match. Mm. And what I found was <laughs> I went out there this match had no idea what to expect um i think i went out there and i remember i i literally tried a technique that i created <laughs> myself as a kid literally i remember thinking i had a headlock of doom yeah. that was my thing in high school so i remember like i headlocked the guy and in jiu-jitsu you'll learn very quickly that's that's just a you're begging to be dumped on your mm. head and just destroyed so i went in there i headlocked him squeezed as hard as i could and i thought you know what i'll try and drag him to the ground like this somehow i don't even remember but I somehow i ended up being on the bottom of a mount. So basically this guy was sitting on my chest and with two hands, he's, he's opening up um, my kimono, which is um, the fabric jacket. He opens up the lapel, um, sorry, opens up the jacket, puts his hand in and just starts decide, you know, getting me with what's, what's called a cross choke. So he's choking me with my own gi, my own lapel <laughs> with both his hands. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know where I pulled this on. I thought that if I keep my hand like in the middle, like as a sort of like a, a barricade, he wouldn't be able to choke me, but he just choked me through my hand anyway. Yeah. And I remember being submitted very quickly and very hum- like quite humiliated and embarrassed. And I, um, for various circumstances, I and from the uh, humiliation of it, I think I just, I as a 19 year old um, with a lot of growth to do, um, abandoned the sport for a couple of years, few years. Um, and didn't come back to it later until I was about 22 and 23 until I'd sort of settled my life down a bit. So then obviously, I guess, why do you think you ended up doing the competition then? Because there's somebody who obviously you're very obsessive and very learning, you know, you, you wanted to be the best at that. And then probably knowing that you weren't really going in with knowing submissions and knowing the rules. Yeah. Do you remember why you ended up doing the tournament then? Um, I guess I believed somewhat the story that was sold to me by my training partners, and no fault of those. I had a very supportive training partner, um, great dude named David Broder. He was very encouraging and said to me, um, basically said, oh, look, you know, you're a beast, you'll do awesome. Like, you know, you've been going to the gym mm. for all these years, you're really strong and powerful, and one of the things you learn about jiu-jitsu is strength and technique are just, you know, mere um, fragments of the greater puzzle. Um, and I just felt very motivated to, to join the competition and see where I was at, but at the same time, I didn't really reconcile with myself the reason why I was going into a competition. It's just something that I just I just went along with. Mm-hmm. I didn't really explore from a very philosophical point of view why I was doing it. 
Um, and so the questions, I, ha- I didn't really have many questions going in. It was more the expectation that I was going to win. Mm. So which was, just, looking back on it, a very, very foolish mindset to have because I'm virtually guaranteed disappointment because if I go into a competition purely just hoping and expecting to win, um, invariably I'm going to lose and I'm going to be disappointed. I'm not really going to enjoy the process if my only joy and satisfaction is derived from the actual outcome. Mm, mm, absolutely. So, see, obviously it was a little bit of humiliation coming out of it. Yep. So, what happened next then? So, you took, took some time off. Yep. How did you end up getting back into the sport then after obviously still being very young in it and yep. having that sort of incident happen? What made you finally go back after so many years? Well, yeah. So, I ended up, um, one of the, I guess, determining um, factors for me um, dropping it was that I had to move house and I, I lived very close to the gym. I ended up moving really far away mm. and I ended up being about an hour and a half away from training and I just got into the, the, the rhythm and routine of uni. I started focusing more on my studies. Um, I kind of didn't really adapt to the lifestyle very well my first year of uni. I, um, I guess I was more trying to negotiate what I wanted to do with my life um, and so yeah, so about 22, 23, I got back into jiu-jitsu um, when, I, when I moved back into the city and I was a lot closer to training and I thought, oh, look, I really, really enjoyed jiu-jitsu, really wanted to get it back into it, shouldn't have stopped it, maybe I'm too old, I don't know, I'm 22, 23, uh, whatever, I, I'll just go and do it and I managed to pull a few friends together and they had a small gym um, in the CBD of Melbourne um, on Flinders Street called, it was called Melbourne Martial Art. Mm-hmm. And I was taught there by a purple belt. So in jiu-jitsu, you've got a white belt, blue belt, purple belt, brown belt, black belt. So black belt being the sort of, you know, you consider like the professor, the master of the art. Um, and so I was taught by a purple belt who happened to be affiliated with the same club that I originally started at. And obviously in jiu-jitsu, the, particularly when I started, there was a huge push and huge drive on loyalty, um, which is something I really grappled with um, in terms of loyalty to a club like that. How'd you uh, grapple with it? Um, it was, I, found, I found it very strange that and at least challenging that they really push this idea and this notion of loyalty. But at least from my perspective, I saw it as purely business guys, mm. just simply a, um, a retention scheme, you mm-hmm. know, disguised as loyalty. Because, you know, this person's demanding loyalty of me to the club and not to train anywhere else, not to train, not to do this and that when I'd only been there for a, for a few years. And that wasn't necessarily from my coach, but it was more like the culture at the time. Mm. And um, whilst he never, you know, seemed a bit, dismissive of other clubs it was you know underlying there was sort of a negative view towards other clubs and a bit of through that rivalry I guess I would have felt ashamed to to go and train elsewhere at least at the start and so this whole drive of the loyalty and it's it's a massive issue and point of uh, contentious debate in still today in jiu-jitsu when they when they really push the idea of loyalty at least my views are on it like it's a two-way relationship mm. and that, you know, as a client, as a paying customer, if the gym and the, the culture is not working out for you, you're, you're well entitled to leave and find somewhere else. Like if you sign up to a fitness gym mm. uh, and they tell you that, you know, you're now loyal to that gym, yeah. you know, it's, you're the paying customer. That's it. Yeah, you exactly. don't go back. Yeah. Obviously, the, the, the stark difference being that in a jiu-jitsu club, you know, you do, you, you train with your, you know, your brothers and sisters in a way that they come to be your brothers and sisters because, you know, you sweat with them, bleed with them and you train and it's, you know, it's a high pressure, high, um, high intensity sport where you really have to band together to get the best results because whilst it's an individual sport of combat and when you step out onto the mat, it's a one-on-one sport, behind you is your team. You know, your team helps grow, you help te- your team helps nurture you and they help develop you to get to that point that you can compete and that, mm. you know, you're, you, in a way you owe them pretty much everything because 
um, they've allowed that. They've given you the opportunity to train and refine yourself. Mm. And, and again, whilst it's an individual, individual sport, you know, you really do need a team behind you. So I understand the whole driver loyalty to that degree, but it did get blurred when you've got a lot of dodgy business people in the industry. Hmm. And so that was something that, you know, I didn't have the best experiences in the business side of things just early on. Um, and so that was, a, that, that was a real factor for me as well. Um, so when I joined, I joined back in this gym in Melbourne um, and again, I just felt like jiu-jitsu for me just clicked. Like a lot of it, a lot of it just clicked. Like I just felt very natural at it. Like the idea of it and just really excited and intellectual. It was a very cerebral sport and they, re they refer to it as chess on the mat um, and you know, you, it doesn't take, you won't, you won't have to look very far to find some examples of people just, so some really intelligent people embracing jiu-jitsu for what it does on an intellectual level. You know, you've got guys like Josh Waitzkin who is a grandmaster in chess, multiple time champion in chess, written countless books on it. You know, they built the, uh, they found a movie on him called Searching Bobby yeah. Fischer. You know, he and him being a very intellectual guy and how he's approached to learning and studying and studying any art or craft, he speaks so highly of jiu-jitsu because it really does stimulate. Um, it is very stimulating on an intellectual level because you've got this. It's a dynamic exchange of transitions and techniques, and it's a very physical sport where you've got the, you're trying to apply a technique on a resisting opponent who's then in turn trying different techniques on you and it's, there's just countless variables and it's such a dynamic exchange that you know, there's so much to think about it all the time but the, almost like the paradox of it is, is that if you're stopping to think, you're too, you know, you're too mm -hmm. slow, too late. And there's an there's a infamous quote, a famous quote by Solo Hibiro who's one of the, probably now almost like a, grand, a grandfather of jiu-jitsu um, and he, he says, if you think you know, you're slow, uh, you're late, if you think you're late, and when, and when you're late, you use strength, when you use strength, you're tired, when you use strength, and when you're tired, you die. Mm, mm. And, you know, like a lot of the early jiu-jitsu pioneers, and even to today, a lot of them reference the animal kingdom and the, you know, that, um, that perpetual fight and flight for survival that is life. Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, the thing too I love, and uh, probably my listeners, and I know you're probably into this as well too, mm -hmm. but I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan. Absolutely. And the, the latest Tim Ferriss and Josh Waitzkin interview is one that I've listened to 10 or so times now, 10 or 15 times now, because, and this is where I, I don't say the idea came from, but really solidified the idea, at least one of these podcasts, of not just yeah. having just other business people, but this idea, and he talks about it, of thematic learning. So um, how can you look at other things in, in our lives and try to find where you can take that same principle and apply mm. it somewhere else? Um, and I think that is so, so incredibly powerful. Like one concept I, I really love and I employ a lot is obviously I go to the gym a fair bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's this idea around injuries and pain, right? So if I, have a, if I have a pain in my knee, inherently a lot of the time you go, okay, well, something's wrong with my knee. Right. Yeah. But very often it's not actually the knee. It's the other aspects. It could be your heel or your hips or your shoulder or your back and looking at those other areas in our life where uh, how it's actually contributing to that to that pain in the knee. And I think the, the, the beautiful analogy is we might have challenges in our lives. And so often we our gut response is to look at that thing. That's the, the pain receptor. We're feeling that angst or that anxiety or the tension or whatever. And we think, okay, if we just address that thing, we solve that, that problem, mm. if I fix my knee, I'll be better. But as I realize more in life and as I speak, have more conversations, it's actually rarely the knee that's causing the problem. It's something else in life that's pulling the tension. So, you know, 
I mean, I talk a lot is you know, people get really anxious, you know, with, with work-life balance. That's a big area of a lot of conversations about. But maybe you go, okay, if I just work less, that'll be better. Mm. But it's not actually looking at the whole... The, the holistic aspect and every the other things are maybe as well too. Maybe you're, maybe you're not being efficient with something else in your life and that's causing the tension and you're seeing it with your work or your family or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're spending so much time at work, you think, uh, or sorry, it's so, much, so much time at work and that's, that's the tension but it manifests, some, manifests itself somewhere else. So that same idea but that was probably a bit of a tangent. But yeah. anyway. Well, uh, yeah. I was going to say, you do, you do summon to mind um, a quote though, a, a quote I do live by from Bruce, um, Bruce Lee and he says, no, do not pray, pray for an easy life, mm. pray for the strength to endure a difficult one and you brought that to mind with your you know, reference to a knee injury and that's something that you really explore with Jiu-Jitsu as, as well. I mean, injuries are inevitable in, in any sport, any, 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 in life really, pain is inevitable to some degree. You know, you, you are going to suffer to some degree so trying to build your life around avoiding suffering, you know, the perpetual question is, like, or the pertinent question is, you know, is that really the most ideal or optimal way to construct your life? Mm. Um, and at least for me, Jiu-Jitsu has always been an amazing framework to really develop those sort of components of myself and I guess really forge resilience through you know the sheer difficulty of it, um, the challenge of it. You know, you go in, you you grind, you get dumped in your head sometimes. I mean, that's uh, you know, if, the better you become, hopefully the, the more you can avoid that. But um, it's it's a sport that's you know that does really push you and challenge you. Yeah, I think as well too. Not to get into a court war, but yeah. another one as well too is that I think it's on the same Tim Ferriss, Josh Waitzkin podcast. It's um, you don't you don't rise to the level of your expectations, you fall to the level of your training yes. as well. And I think that is an area that um, has been incredibly profound in my life, whereas I hope to be amazing, right? But if I don't practice and I don't put myself in uncomfortable positions, mm. how will I ever expect to actually to, to do that? And you know, so often in life, I think and in situations, we, we wait for that moment where we expect to turn it on. But then we mm. get there, and I know I've had moments where you you feel like, okay, this is it, this is the moment, you go to turn it on, and there's nothing there because mm. you haven't practiced it, you haven't fostered that skill. So back to another quote I use all the time, and again, my listeners are tired of hearing this one, but it's the little things are the big things. Yeah. So if you're practicing those little things, when you actually get the opportunity to turn it on to the big thing, yeah. you, you've fallen back to the level of your training. You don't have to, you don't have to hope you're going to be amazing because you know you've practiced and put the time and the effort in. So Absolutely agree. So going back then, so you so you start back in this gym. Yep. Um, obviously, I'd imagine you probably didn't have a lot of profound learnings that obviously coming out of your your competition, losing that, and then getting back in it. How was how was your growth in terms of your your um, how how did your mindset change as you started to get back into jujitsu the second time? I think gym? yeah, I think um, for a large at least in the early stages of my jujitsu career, I really held myself back. I really held myself back mentally. Um, I really crippled myself. I was a very anxious person. I didn't really understand what anxiety was. Um, I had some challenges in university where I just felt like I was being overwhelmed. And I sort of thought, oh, look, you know, I'll explore the counseling services. And I remember seeing that word anxiety and thinking, oh, look, I don't know why. It just didn't really resonate with me. And I just didn't really bother looking further with it. And what I really learned through, I guess, jiu-jitsu, is particularly in, in the early days, so after my initial phase, I... Uh, in my initial phase, I had to get on a tram and travel um, quite some distance um, after about six months. So, just to wrap it up a little bit, sorry to, to, to shell it out a little bit better. Um, so, I, I was at this gym for about six months, very small gym um, and, you know, a really small um, sort of group of guys and girls. 
and not that many really high level people. So it didn't really take long for, you know, me to sort of be one of the sort of uh, top tier sort of guys rolling there, even though there was a few guys who were really quite experienced, quite good. There wasn't really a lot of grappling partners. Um, and I started to really, you know, have a, a, an even stronger interest in jiu-jitsu. And I thought, well, look, I really want to start growing in this sport. Um, and I, I want to, you know, look at a, you know, a different opportunity. So I started training back where I first started, which was a Ben Hall, Carlson Gracie in um, Duke Street in Pram, so it's in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. And I was living in Melbourne at the time, so I had to catch a tram. Probably would have taken me about 30, 40 minutes, depending on the day, to get there. And I don't really go around telling people, a lot of people about this, but I, I used to get on the tram and probably I'd aim to go to about three or four classes a week. And I'd probably only ever get to one if that. I'd get on the tram and after about 20 minutes, I'd, I'd be on the tram and I, in my mind, I'd be festering like just really some really toxic ideas and emotions about what's going to happen to me at training and just the embarrassment and humiliation and what's waiting for me there that because jiu-jitsu when you roll someone it's there's there's absolutely no lying on the mat like it's become, it's very decisive who 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 wins who's better who's stronger and who's faster so all of this becomes very apparent it's very confronting to a lot of people you see a lot of people walk in and they never come back or mm. people will do it for a little while until eventually they just can't their egos just can't handle it and they never come back mm. so invariably you often find that people who do sort of stick to it have had to do a lot of grappling with their ego and excuse the pun but um there's a lot of there's a lot of self-exploration that has to go on um some people just i think naturally impervious to self-doubt they're just wired a little bit different so they just don't think about these things they don't ask these questions of themselves but at least for someone like myself and people like me um i overthink things i overanalyze things and i'm always asking questions of why what if well oh, this could happen that could mm -hmm. happen and i've already laid out a billion scenarios in my head and so I'd be on the tram, um, public transport, um, to training and I'd be just increasingly becoming more and more anxious the closer I got to, to training. And I guess a part of it was I didn't really feel like I was, I don't know, worthy. I just didn't feel like I was good because I was a white belt. I was a beginner. And mm -hmm. naturally, you, you don't start something as the best. Generally, when you start something, if you compare yourself to the best in the sport, then you're obviously quite terrible. Yeah. And so being, being competitive and someone who hadn't really matured much with I guess, understanding my own anxiety issues and my own confidence issues, this was very challenging because I'd be, I'd be thinking about how I was so crap compared to these other people that, you know, it was, it was a waste of time. And I never really understood that, at least at this point in my life, that becoming good at something takes time. Mm. Um, Bill Gates has a quote about a lot of people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that is such an applicable quote to myself because I sort of had this unrealistic expectation, I guess, at the start that, you know, I remember asking, like, when I first went to the gym, like, oh, how long did it take you to become big and buff to these? Mm. You know, I'd ask people in the gym, and a lot of them would be like, oh, I've been doing this for years, and that, that wasn't the answer I wanted. I wanted yeah. to, I wanted that shortcut. I wanted to know, okay, that's awesome, but I want to do it in three weeks. Mm. I want to be, I want to look like Ronnie Coleman and Arnold Schwarzenegger in three yeah. weeks. So I was obviously, you know, as you learn from that, I was a little bit impatient. So I'd be on the tram, and a lot of times, uh, three out of these four sessions, if maybe four out of four. I would just get halfway there and just get off and get on the tram back and I would I would just skip training um, because the anxiety was just, I didn't know how to negotiate, I didn't know how to deal with it and it would overwhelm me and I thought, you know what, it's much easier, it's much safer just to go home and mm. you know, maybe I can just do whatever I want, I can just watch TV, there won't be the stress or the pressure of me having to line up in this class mm. and have, you know, wear this belt that signifies my rank amongst everyone else and I won't have to com combat all these people and they won't have to beat me. So. I can just go home and I'm safe at home. You know, like uh, my coach says, you know, you can spend your life on a, ca on a couch at home or, um, and never lose or you can get out there and really learn who you are.
Absolutely. So how did you, how did you go about changing or, or do you remember when that, that mindset started to shift or, or how you sort of confronted that? I think, so I trained that club for a while. Um, I've only ever really trained at four clubs in my life. So the first club being an affiliate. Um, so the first club I trained at was in Pran. Um, so I, I trained there for a bit longer and then I didn't really feel like the, the environment was right for me. Um, the culture was there, was a bit, it was a pretty competitive environment and I don't think it was a healthy type of competition. I felt like there was a little bit of bitterness and resentment from some of the upper belts and it just the higher belts. So the people who ranked higher than me, um, they weren't, I just didn't feel like I was getting the best support for my growth. And I ended up moving um, gyms to, which is um, was an amazing environment, a place called Kaizen Fitness. And I wasn't actually that far away. And a lot of people had already, from my club, had already moved away because the gym culture was starting to become mm. a little bit toxic. And, and you know, so my friends moved and I thought, well, look, you know, the few friends I had, some of the friends I made at this gym have already moved on, so I'll follow them. And so we ended up having a, just a different coach, different environment. And then as I started to become better, I got, I, I just got my blue belt. And that was like, obviously signifying that I'd learned a certain, I'd reached a certain level. So did you just essentially then, obviously, because you mentioned that you were going to, mm. you know, trying to go for four, one section, maybe none. Yeah. So when you moved to this new gym until you sort of hit that level, were you still just, for lack of a better term, grinding it out, still sort of just going through those mental yeah. sort of paces with yourself and eventually you just spent enough time on the mat that you sort of got that next level? Oh, absolutely. Like I... I, I can recall so many memories in my sporting history. I mean, I played tennis competitively for a few years. I'm going to say competitively. It's like my local league. <laughs> and I played um, Australian rules football. And I have memories of, I guess, sort of feeling anxious and stuff back then. But, um, you know, I had a, it, was sort of, it was sort of a very different thing when it came to jiu-jitsu and everything rested upon me. So I started to sort of grind out a little bit. And then as I became sort of more interested and fascinated with it, I had a friend who was also interested, also started doing jiu-jitsu with me and we're both interested in it. We're living together and so we could, I could watch things and we decided to get mats in the house mm. and that was when, and I was already a blue belt this time, but again, I was a blue belt, but I just didn't really have the confidence in the sport yet and so we started trying out, you know, we, we matted out the house and we basically <laughs> made the house all about jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, so we started just training at home in between classes and we started like practicing techniques and we'd watch things on the internet and practice them. And I started just really embracing a lot of different sort of ideas about jiu-jitsu and I just started going, I started just training more. And then the more I trained, the, the greater my results were and the better I became, the faster, the faster I became um, better. And so I started to actually really obtain some kind of confidence and I'd, I, through jiu-jitsu, and I, I never went to jiu-jitsu for the purpose of fitness, but I just started becoming, you know, my fitness improved. I, I became incredibly lean. I was feeling stronger. Um, I was just in shape, and I, I just started to feel a lot better about myself. And just through training, I guess, and the friends, for the friends and the relationships I started developing mm. and then started to have a new eye for competition, I found that I just, confidence started to grow in me and started to really manifest in me because I was looking, I, I, I remember one of the epiphanies I had was that, you know, I didn't, even though I started and I felt sort of naturally good at jiu-jitsu, it was, wasn't until I put a lot of hard work into it and I kept showing up and I just kept showing up and all the times that I thought about staying home, I started to just get myself to training. I started to realize that, you know, when I want something hard, I want something bad enough, I really have to work hard for it and it doesn't matter how naturally good I feel at something, you know, then one of the quotes that you see perpetuated in jiu-jitsu is that hard work beats talent when talent refuses to work hard. Absolutely. And I really started to learn that in that, you know, 
doesn't matter how good I thought I was or how good I thought I could be, you know, there's no hiding the fact that I had to just really grind and work hard to get there. And then I started to realize that it was completely up to me. The power was in my hands. I could be as great as I wanted to be, but it was, it was always going to be up to me. And I was the one who was going to have to put the hard work in. I was going to have to train. I had to get up in the morning to go to training. You know, I had to do everything right in order to become the best I could be, uh, you know, to become the best I could be. Again, that was a responsibility that, that fell completely on my shoulders. I could blame the external world as much as I wanted, and my environmental factors, and my you know genetic factors, or whatever it is. None of that mattered. It just I just had to show up and I had to work hard. Mm. So, do you remember any point that, or anything along this line, which started you started to get these, or, or anywhere you started to get these ideas or start to realize them, or was it just a slow process essentially through through that journey? Because obviously, you talked about you know going from you know, the, the anxiety and the, and the tram and only being able to do one to sort of mm. that, I guess my question is, was there anything in between that, that other than moving in with, with the, or having, living with somebody who was sort of fostering that, anything else that sort of perpetuated that sort of mind shift, mindset shift? Um, I guess through this process, I became increasingly self-aware and started to realize that, um, I don't know if it was like a defining moment, but I started to journal a lot of ideas and stuff mm. that I had about jiu-jitsu and a lot of reflections and it wasn't just jiu-jitsu, things in my life and I guess the lessons and issues I was facing and how I was growing and adapting to them and I guess it was a, I just, I, I forged a, a new set of confidence just through the art um, by training hard and becoming so immersed in it and seeing growth, just, just mm. seeing the results paying off. Um, the little wins. Yeah, the little wins, and they were just adding up to a to a greater win, which was, you know, building building confidence and improving my self image. Because I realized that I was someone who really suffered from self image issues, and I started getting into uh, becoming a really avid student of motivational and psychological material. Um, got into a lot of entrepreneurial type stuff because I find that the entrepreneurial mindset and the life and entrepreneur is somewhat inextricably linked to. Mm-hmm. You know, having having a like a resilient mindset, absolutely. you can't be a successful absolutely. entrepreneur without realizing that failure is absolutely inherent and necessary to success. Yeah. And so, one book that really changed my life was uh, something called The New Psychosomatics by Maxwell Maltz. Um, I'm pretty preachy with this book to oh, pretty much it. anyone it's because true, yeah. yeah, I just I just find it to be I found it to be a to be a real like a compendium of resources um, that me as an individual as a person really needed I mean some of the lessons I learned from it was that um, our inner monologue and the co- like the conversation we have with ourselves is absolutely critical and I realized that when I was faced with adversity and challenge these conversations I was having with myself were so negative I I'm, the conversation I had with myself would be along the lines of um, oh like this guy this person is so much stronger and faster and better than me um, oh and like therefore they'll win and you know I'd beat myself before I even went out there yeah. and then when I'd had when I had successes I realized that I realized that a lot of the times my mindset going in was a lot better like I'd look at someone and I if I decided I could beat them then my obviously my chance of beating would be much higher and I'd go out and destroy and then someone would come up and say oh you know that guy was a you know at blue belt level that guy's a judo black belt and I was like really like <laughs> wow like I just beat like some somebody who on paper probably should have beaten me mm. And then I realized, had I known that before, I would have crippled myself with anxiety Absolutely. and I would have just really defeated myself. And so, the, and the concept of self-image, I believe, was actually coined by Maxwell Maltz. I mean, I could be wrong, but um, that was something that really stood out to me is just being absolutely necessary and pivotal to me in my life and really understanding and learning to grapple with myself because um, for various reasons, I grew up with a lot of self-doubt 
and I had a lot of work to do to really overcome that. And even to today when I compete, I still feel anxious, but it's, it's more like I'm comfortable with the fact that anxiety is something to expect from competition and that it's perfectly normal. That it, just because I'm getting anxious doesn't mean that my body is mm. more in tune with my own failure. It's more that you know my body's preparing itself for a difficult situation. It's a feedback mechanism, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So I know one big thing that we've always had a range of conversations about is sort of how you view the actual competition um, in terms of it's still it's still a competition and it's still mm. a platform, but for you, it's a bit more of a deeper level. And I'd love if you could explain a bit more around that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I sort of expressed already, competition was just a terrifying experience for me. First, first competition experience ever, got choked out really horribly, you know, beaten in probably 30 seconds, if that. Um, in front of my girlfriend at the time, friends who I was like told everyone I was competing in the state <laughs> championships and yeah, it didn't work out so well. Um, and as I grew into competition a little bit more, I, I started to really look at it as more of a, more as that platform to really negotiate my own anxieties and my own, I guess, how I look at challenge because, you know, it's a, it is a very confrontational sport when, you've, when it's a one-on-one um, competitive sport. You step out on the mat, you've got so many people around you in this arena screaming, shouting. You've got people the opposition, op, like a, like the, of the opposition's team screaming at you and sometimes abusing you, sometimes like, you know, yelling out, like screaming at the ref, telling the ref that you're doing something or they're doing something and really trying to <laughs> add pressure to the situation. Yeah. And meanwhile, you're grappling with this person who's looking to submit you and put your way um, in front of, you know, your teammates and your friends and family. So it's a very overwhelming situation and it can be. So I started to look at it more as this is a really difficult thing. Like this is a really difficult process for me. I, you know, a week before the competition, I wake up, my heart rate's at probably 200. I, mm. I'm sweating. I'm, you know, I'm getting adrenaline dumps every single day leading up to the competition. And I thought this really scares me. This is something that terrifies me. And I had to really work out like why, like why is it, you know, to, to bring on the purpose and inquisitive nature of your podcast, but why am I feeling like this? What is it that's really setting about it? And when I, you know, really explored that, I sort of realized that, it comes down to, I put my own self-image in the hands of others. Like mm. I, I looked for validation from others. I looked at people to tell me what I'm worth. People to tell me this is where you stand and this is this is your price and your value in this world. And when I started to sort of look at it more as jiu-jitsu competition is just a, a platform, an opportunity to um, test out who's got the best jiu-jitsu on the day. And look, you know, the people you compete against might have the best jiu-jitsu you know, every other day of the year mm. and every day of the week, but you might have your opportunity in that in that competition or that opportunity. And also, beyond that though, that was just more reconciling with what jiu-jitsu competition is. But for me, it's because the emotional journey of it was, again, terrifying. So I had to really, um, really stand up to the feelings it was evoking, invoking in me. And again, as I said, like it was, it came down to my self-image. I just wasn't comfortable at the end of the day with who I was and I wasn't comfortable being in my own skin. I'd never actually done any work on myself. I'd, I'd gone through things, I'd won things, I'd finished university, I'd finished high school. I'd done all these things that you know, people could say, oh, you know what, kick back and say, look, I've done that. Mm. But I'd never ever taken the time to really go, hey, you know, you're, you're not a bad person, you're a good guy, Brenton, you, know, you can do it, you're capable, it's all up to you, really the power's in your hands. And one of the things I really derived, derived from that Maxwell Maltz um, book, The New Psychosomatics that I've talked about, is that he talks about like an automatic success mechanism or an automatic failure mechanism. And all it really is is like a switch in your brain where you look at where you look at an outcome and you look at, you know, am I going to succeed or am I going yeah. to failure at it? And where you put your energy and your focus ultimately determines your reality. And as I touched on with my experience of competing and how I looked at my opponents and how I had the mindset going in, 
it, it really started to envelop itself to me that really my mindset is everything. And when I started to realize that I could be working on my mindset in this sport, in my chosen field, and I think that anyone could do this anywhere. You could, you yeah. know, in the, in the corporate world where I work as a facility manager, I have to, you know, I, I'm met with risky and um, confrontational situations with asset failure, like, you know, building breakdowns, lockdowns, um, high-risk incidents, fires, and all of that. And it's, it's really like these are, these are opportunities that always test you to explore how you respond to crises and how you respond to situations. So I always looked at jiu-jitsu as like a mechanism or as a tool for me to really explore and better how I negotiate difficult situations. And for me, it's just this perpetual growing um, phase. And even if I never won a single fight in jiu-jitsu mm. again, I'd be happy to simply have that opportunity and be available to me to, to really grow and learn from because every time I'm training, I'm learning more about myself. Um, you know, like I took, I recently had an injury break um, and started a new job and I thought, look, I'll take a month off just to really refresh um, and reset myself and I came back and I sort of had a bit of a staggered season end of last year. So my, I took a time, I took time off from training, not really in, the, in my prime sort of physical condition or mental condition and when I returned to it, I sort of felt I was look fairly unfit and I wasn't quite at the same level and I, had, I, I felt those feelings of doubt really seeping into me again, like where I was really questioning myself. I was like, I had these automatic thoughts of, shit, maybe I'm like, <laughs> maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm just sort of past a little bit or maybe... You're over the hill. Maybe I'm over yeah. the hill. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, I'm 31 now. Maybe for me, that was it. 31 was just my turning point. And I sort of thought, ah, oh, like, you know, a long time ago, 10 years ago, I would have like just accepted those feelings. I would have accepted those thoughts in my mind and taken those home with me and said, okay, this is me. I've, this, is, this is decisively and conclusively who I am and what I am. But instead, I, I've been really working on this fac- these, as- these facets of myself and thought, yeah, okay, look, returning from a layoff or an injury is never easy. So, of course, it's going to be hard. It's just going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. And my time off, everyone else has been training really hard. Everyone else is becoming better. So, whether I've become worse or not, it doesn't matter. Everyone else is becoming better and it's my own journey to, to grow and learn from. So, I like, really sat down and thought, thinking to myself that, look, it's, it, it's challenging, but you know, I've, I've got to get back out there and I've really got to grow myself and develop to, to, to get back to that level. I think one thing too that I want to just spend a few moments on myself as well and what you said around if focusing on the self-talk and focusing on sort of your perception around sort of things and that and the realizing that that mental awareness, that mental state is the precursor to everything else. You can be you can be said technically strong but if mm. you have psyched yourself out or induced a bunch of negative talk prior to sipping on the comp- sipping on the mat you're probably going to fail and or at least stack the odds against you and in, in yeah. a competition you don't want it you want to make it as easy as possible yourself right um and i think that 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 concept is really really the why of my y2 podcast yes. i've i've met we've talked about this before i've met so many people that go if only i had x skill if yeah. only i had x knowledge if only i had x amount of money or whatever other resource out there that they feel that they need in order to 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 help them achieve or unlock or do whatever they they think they want to do or be or whatever um and i know myself i'm i'm very voracious in terms of my research and wanting to to understand very much Mm. like yourself a very kinship in that i'm researching i'm googling and as an a-type personality which i just kind of generally chunk it into without going deeper into it um you know i'm reading about five ways to do social media and three network three ways to do networking tools linkedin <laughs> and all this sort of stuff and i realize that it's important but if you haven't built it on the actual idea of the mindset to begin with 
it doesn't matter how much social media you, you go to networking events and you've got these three great tools these three great opening yeah. lines but if you don't have the mindset to be able to approach people or put yourself out there and accept the fact you're probably going to fail because this is your first time or you're probably not you're probably researching it because you're still not really good at it absolutely you're going to fail and that whole feedback that whole self-talk is so bloody important it is everything absolutely oh, everything i absolutely agree and i think like larger exactly what you're touching on failure is just absolutely necessary and critical to, to success i mean it's your relationship to failure is absolutely going to determine the success you have in life i think i always looked at traditionally failure is so conclusive is that okay you know we grow we go through school and the academic journey of being given grades and we, we accept these grades as you know validating or invalidating us so they mm. determine what we're worth and who we are yeah. but really all it is it's almost like it's really just a snapshot of where you're at in that point in time and, and that's okay that you know you, you're gonna anything anything you set out to master you're gonna fail a, a million times mm. before you eventually find the success that you've dreamed of and that's that's perfectly okay that's fine it's expected and by embracing failure is more for the lessons that you can learn from it and not how to do it and what you can grow from. Uh, those are the determinants that will lead you to the outcome you're desiring. Absolutely. I've got this concept as well too. And I think you know, people are probably really sick of it here by now. But Tim Ferriss talks about the win-win mm. scenario too. So if you, if you rephrase failure to what you get out of it, it's, mm. it's incredible. So like we've talked about, this podcast for me has been really not only an opportunity to bring these conversations out there, but also a bit of a platform. Actually, my platform, my, my jiu-jitsu platform competition yeah. for my own sort of challenges as well in life and the self-talk and the negativity that I maybe have around some things. And, um, and I've worked quite hard on that. But, this, but you know, even this podcast, it's the, the inception for it was a long time ago. Yeah. And I really grappled with those things about, well, what if I do this? And what if what if I don't find anybody? And what if I can't? Whatever it was sort of thing, right? But I realized I had to. All these to, mental barriers you constructed for yourself until eventually one day you just did it. Absolutely. I just I had to go with it. But I think a big part for me was rephrase this failure to feedback mix it's a win-win so yeah. two things are going to happen i'm either going to go it's either going to blow up i'm going to have my own media empire of this podcast and happy days <laughs> or i'm going to realize or i'm going to get a skill out of it so that's where we talk about you know tim Ferriss talks about starting his podcast and i took a lot of that same too but he's going to come out of it and either have even if it fails by all outward measures of success and it, nobody listens to it and it folds, he'll have got, or I'll have got a level of skill. I'll develop all these great uh, attributes out of it, really allowing me to sort of really have a platform to test myself and to become, to, to, to really grow and, and to actually manifest these, these learnings where I can say, okay, I've got, I feel like I've got the self-talk stuff done, you know, I can intellectually get it. Mm. But then if I actually get on the platform and actually test it in real life, um, then again, I, I fall to the level of my training, not rise to the level of my hope. So very powerful. Now, uh, one thing I wanted to ask about as well, too, is you, going back to your injury, you went yep. through quite a serious injury as well, too, quite debilitating. I'd love if you could talk a little bit around the situation, what happened, and a little bit after that. Yeah, sure. Um, I think... So I had probably two-ish, well, I had one very serious injury and one injury that really um, shook me up initially. I mean, after training jiu-jitsu for about six to eight months, I think I decided, um, after maybe, maybe about a year, I decided I wanted to start going for runs and sprints and really you know, sharpen up for jiu-jitsu, outside conditioning. I ended up blowing a disc in my lower back that put me out for a little while and that was a long time of rehab, you know, through the sciatica and everything, my left leg feeling numb and atrophying muscle there. That was quite debilitating. But further on in my career, I'd just gotten my purple belt. Um, 
I think I had been doing jiu-jitsu maybe for around four, maybe four years, five years, and maybe, uh, maybe actually no, three years and just got my purple belt. And I had had an existing neck injury, but I had never really treated it seriously. Um, later learned it was a bulge disc in my neck, but so I had a, I'd had a bulge disc in my neck and I kept training and it was at the point where I'd really gone the other way with my mindset where I thought I'd become invincible, that I was going to push through everything, I was going to push through barriers of, you know, I, I'd lived so much of my life in self-doubt <laughs> and holding myself back that I wasn't going to let anything get in my way anymore. I was just going to train, I was going to show up and you see all those quotes thrown around everywhere about, you know, success is just showing up and getting there and doing <laughs> the hard work and I thought, look, that I'm going to be that. And so, foolishly, I didn't, I didn't really pay attention to like, the magnitude of what could be, you know, what could be happening with my body, with my neck. So I'd had a neck injury and I got the opportunity to train with a multiple time world champion um, who's one of the Mendes brothers, uh, Glimmer Mendes and his brother Rafael Mendes, um, greatest lightweight in jiu-jitsu history. So they came over to Australia to do a seminar and in jiu-jitsu, one of the most amazing things about it is that you get to train with your heroes. Mm. Like, you know, a basketball player doesn't get to just walk onto a court and play with LeBron James. But in jiu-jitsu at its current level, like many of these champions go over to UFC and become superstars. Um, you know, for example, and you get the chance to train with them. So very recently, I trained with uh, Minotaur Nagira as an example, a UFC fighter and many others. But coming back to the story... So getting, to, I got to train finally with the Mendes brothers, and at this point in time, they were just they were tearing the world apart. They had the innovative techniques. They were leading the world with like just you know their creativity and just making competition look easy. So they came out to do a seminar, and after showing a series of techniques, they gave us the opportunity to actually spar with them. So I got to train with Guillermo Mendes, and I remember feeling like my neck was really really sore and tight. I didn't really have much give with it, and I thought, oh, look, I this is my chance to roll with the world champion, mm. um, black belt world champion, and I really want this chance to train with them. Um, anyway, he caught me in a choke, um, basically wrapped up a part of my gi jacket around my own neck and got me in what's called a bravo choke or like an arm triangle choke. So basically, I was being choked off with my own arm and his other <laughs> arm and he had me cinched in this choke and I think, I think I actually tried to stand up and defend it somehow, but me being... Uh, a little bit stubborn, I, uh, I went to sleep. I got put to sleep and probably around the same time that I got dropped a little bit and I kind of got like the pressure of him on the choke kind of crunched my head a little bit. And I immediately didn't feel right. I felt like something was up. Like I didn't feel like I was in an immense amount of pain or anything. I just felt a bit of a sort of a, like a weird sort of pop or pull in my neck. And I just really didn't, didn't feel good at all. Um, but it didn't feel like immensely painful or anything. I just felt kind of dazed and disorientated. So I went and sat up against the mirror, the back wall of the gym, which is the mirror. And I, I, I sort of felt a little bit dazed and doped for about five, 10 minutes and I thought, uh, I'm just going to go home. So when spoke to the gym owner and said something, mumbled something about my neck and got on the tram. And I remember on the tram, on the tram ride home, I just felt like I just felt like my neck just didn't have any strength in it. I just felt weak and I just felt debilitated. I, it was, then it was just starting to really, really hurt. Like the pain just came out of nowhere and it felt like my neck was on fire. And I went home and basically my um, sister, I was living with my sister at the time and her fiance sort of looked at me strangely. Um, girlfriend at the time then looked at me and sort of said, what's wrong with your neck? Like, you're not really, you look like you're in a lot of pain. You're kind of just trying to adjust your neck. And I said, yeah, like, I don't know, I crunch my neck really hard. And I just, just don't feel good. Like, I just can't seem to find a place but my head. It doesn't feel comfortable. Went to the doctors. Uh, so I went to the emergency room. And initially they said, the doctor said, oh, 
you've got tonsillitis and they gave me, <laughs> yeah, and uh, didn't, okay, didn't yeah. bother getting me checked out and gave me Valium, had some Valium, they just like, look, you'll feel better soon. After about 20, 30 minutes, I was like, oh yeah, like I, oh, I actually do feel a little bit better. And she said, yeah, look, you know, tonsils when they get swollen, hit your neck. I see you, but really like my neck, like why am yeah. I hurting after jiu-jitsu? Why have I suddenly got tonsillitis? You're a medical doctor, but uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I thought, look, yeah, I don't have a medical degree, so I'm not going to argue with you. It didn't seem right. So I thought, oh, whatever, look, I'll go home. And then somehow I just, I just couldn't get to sleep. And then just the pain just kept ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And I, I literally like I'd somehow got sleep probably very early in the morning. And I was, I was just a mess. I was just in that much pain and it was just getting worse. Like I just was blinded by it. I, I felt like my neck was on fire. My right arm just suddenly wasn't working properly anymore. Mm. It just, it, I, I couldn't grip things. It, it felt that it just was extremely painful to move. And so I thought, oh, look, I'm, you know, if it's, maybe I'll just go to the physio and, and get it looked at. Went to the physio, alarm bells ringing straight away. They sent me off to get an MRI. And, and I, my, the whole, throughout the whole process, I'm asking like, oh, look, you know, what does this mean for my jiu-jitsu? Yeah. Like, what am I going to do? So went and got the scans and the physio said to me, look, you know, you've got the scans back. We're going to have to refer you to someone probably like a, you know, to get it looked at further, but it's not good. Um, you've basically ruptured one of the discs and you've got some damage to like vertebrae. Um, <laughs> and look, maybe hold off on the jutsu talk and then, <laughs> so end up seeing a sports doctor. Um, my, one of my best friends, brothers is a surgeon and they, they sort of said to me, look, we can refer you to someone who's going to be a little bit more sympathetic, um, you know, to the fact that you really want to do your sport and you might be able to get a better outcome. So when saw him and yeah, it turned out that my C6 and C7 disc had been virtually almost crushed. Um, mm. and herniated and with a fissure through it, which is the complete split and that I damaged the vertebrae, um, and that it was, I was given a 33% chance of it getting worse, 33% chance of it staying the same. And obviously 33% chance of it getting slightly better that, you know, maybe just hold off on the jutsu talk and bring me back. It's just, it's, it's for the large part done. And yeah. And so it was a very, very difficult road. It was, I was in extreme agony for a long time, several months. I basically was never pain-free, having been prescribed things like endones, some really serious painkillers and having to, when I, when I go to sleep, waking up after three hours when they'd wear off from the mm. pain and then having to dose up again just to be able to sleep and just the, I guess the psychological challenges that were immense. Um, I remember thinking like I was trapped in, trapped in a bedroom for a whole month, just mm. being able to really do nothing in a neck brace, just hoping that my neck would get better, just laying there thinking about all the dreams I had about jujitsu and how I'd finally turn the corner mentally with my self-confidence and self-image and I finally had this thing that I was so passionate about and I could really explore that and it was ripped away from me so it was a, it was a really, really difficult time. Yeah, I think too the, the analogy, to go back to the idea of thematic learning as well too as we all do talk about and I certainly do encourage through this yep. people pursuing their dreams and pursuing whatever it is that they want to achieve but also realizing that as much as we try to encourage that what could go wrong, something can go wrong as well too. Absolutely. But obviously... Um, love you could tell us a little bit more about obviously the journey after that as well too and how you sort of recovered from from an injury that serious but also too it's said the psychological challenge of pushing yourself being bit and and coming back from that yeah so I virtually never lost my hunger to do jiu-jitsu there's times where I kind of I, in some ways I had to sort of sit down and go okay I can't do jiu-jitsu now it's, it's you know I'm being told it's you know, basically virtually have to give it up. Like my people around me were sort of like a little bit concerned and worried that, 
you know, that I was going <laughs> to go completely off the rails because I kept talking about jiu-jitsu. Um, I had in my mind that I always wanted to do jiu-jitsu. It, it, I felt like it, it had ingrained itself in my blood that it was, mm. a part, it was a part of the essence of who I was. And part of grappling with that and returning to that was that I, I had to sit down and go, okay, jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu is an amazing sport and it's been a big part of my life. So I'm gonna have to look. I'm, I want to be involved in it any way I can. Then, so maybe, maybe I have to. Maybe I just have to give up competition. That's okay. That's okay. But jujitsu, uh, a sport that offers me sort of a mental outlet. It offers me the, the an outlet to relieve physical stress. It's such a, and, and then it's got an amazing community around it. So I thought I can always be involved in these things and be, you know, satisfied in that regard. And competition is something I'll put away and I'll I'll just train as I can. So I, I had a very be very honest with my limitations and realize, okay, I'm coming back from a very serious injury that could become easily exacerbated through jiu-jitsu. It's, you know, it's a sport of crunching and pressure mm. and tackles and everything, and my neck is often the first thing people want to attack. So I had to be very calm with how I returned and realized that, well, I guess what it did teach me a lot about myself was that I'm a very obsessive person. I like throwing myself into things and becoming completely immersed. And like the old fable quote of, you know, don't put your eggs all in, all your eggs in one basket. I had to really learn that, okay, I needed to not just be completely zoned out of everything else. And, you know, I need to have a few things going on. Otherwise, if that thing disappeared, you know, if I became, for example, if you become completely obsessed with your body and your self image and, you know, how you look to the world, that all things fade, mm. all things dissipate. So I had to really start to look at other things. One of the things I became really fascinated with was starting to read about entrepreneurial books, um, and self-development and start to really look at, okay, let's take a step back from me as a competitor in jiu-jitsu and let's look at it as how I'm growing from it and more, I became more invested in it as the experience of jiu-jitsu, mm. which is where I started to really forge this interest and curiosity in, in a greater capacity in regards to experience. Um, we're all going, we all have our individual journey, we have, all have lessons, we learn from things and so I started to look at what can I deconstruct from this and what can I break down and distill and what have I learned from it? And so I accepted the reality that I might not be a competitor again, even though the most success I ever had in jiu-jitsu was post-neck injury, um, you know, I had, where I won a state level, national level, and have competed hand, quite a few times internationally um, at the biggest competitions in the world. Um, for me, it's always been about the experience. So I can go into that and say, win or lose, I'm experiencing this. This is like, this is what makes me feel alive, and, this, and I'm going to come away learning something and be... Um, I'll come away as a greater person from it. Mm. I don't think one thing as well too. I don't. We'll probably we'll have to say for a round two, but yep. obviously where a lot of our conversations are focused around too is your your self your study of your self self pursued study I should say of yourself and the psychology as well too has really led you down very interesting professional paths as well too. And obviously we've had a lot of really interesting conversations around this sort of idea of transferable learning, where mm. the things you're learning in those particular areas have such strong um, thematic aspects to it as obviously I hope people get out of today's chat. So looking at, okay, so this is the field of, of uh, jiu-jitsu, competition, experience, self-talk, and looking at those other ways as well too in other capacities. So if somebody is doing something and they fail, which happens, I mean, we talk all the time and I've met lots of people who fail in a particular area, at the same time, you might outwardly look like you fail in that, but back to that win-win, mm. that you've also, at the same time, been cultivating an amazing, eclectic skill set of uh, ideas and techniques and relationships and all these other sorts of things that you can easily pivot into other things. So, Absolutely. I mean, one of my more recent obsessions is uh, user experience design, otherwise known as UX, um, which looks at really 
um, the interaction and design of functionality. Mm. Um, you know, when, when technology is designed, how functional is it? How is it usable? And the psychology behind that and all those interactions. One of the principles that really is uh, like almost overnight changed me <laughs> was one of the founding pr first principles is fail fast. So when you set out to do something, um, you know, just just get going, just start. Like you're going to fail, so fail fast, get that out of the way and, mm. and all those failures, all those iterations that they refer to it are going to teach you more about the, you know, the design. And when I look at it from a UX point of view, design, it's such an amazing framework because when you're looking at designing any kind of form of technology, I mean, nothing is, nothing is created overnight as, as a success. Mm. There's multiple iterations of it that eventually lead to that, that product that changes the world or designed with success. And I just find that so that's a game changer for me is like learning like through all my other aspects of learning and to negotiate failure but learning that in any design process of any any endeavor you set out to do that you know have many attempts at it many iterations until eventually you're finding that success because it's you're probably going to categorize it as a failure until it is a, is a success yeah absolutely i think to kind of go deeper into that as well too we talk a lot about and you've talked a lot about the process as well too yeah. right the process of the research the process of uh the self-talk the process of looking at how you're living your life and making the adjustments like you talked about how you and you and your roommate had rebuild the house kind of thing right yeah and the videos the training the competitions the the all the you know even outside of the actual jiu-jitsu training into you know uh, lifting weights and, and cardio and stuff like that. You're we're really talking about a process here, aren't we? Yeah, really absolutely. Refinement of that process, and in this case, it happened to be jujitsu. This happened to be your area of how that was the input that you put into it, and and how you shaped the process. But it came out to be you know a world class competitor competing all around the world and winning quite handsomely as well too. Mm. But now we're talking about you know you could you could apply the same thing to UX as well too, and sort of that same series of inputs, self talk, and all those sorts of things. And I think. That for me is is really cool, and what I want people to get out of this chat as well too is, you know, probably not a lot of people are, are going to be jujitsu athletes, and I don't yeah. expect them to be, you know, taking what you're talking about in terms of stepping onto the mat and being able to be okay. I get this. I'm going to step <laughs> on as a mat. This Brenton guy seems to have said this. So I'm going to say that. Yeah, a lot but, of assumed knowledge. <laughs> exactly, but looking at it in terms of okay, I'm able to do something really, really big here. How? What am I? What's my self talk like? What am I? What do my process look like? How do I shape? I mean, that? and really, like that just translates to simply any endeavor or activity activity that is important to you. I mean, going to a jiu-jitsu competition was important to me. I wanted to win, but that's no different to stepping into a, a lecture room or stepping into a, a meeting room mm. and knowing that you're going to have to pitch and sell something like you, you feel at the time your career depends on it. If you can win over this client and sell something major or, you know, forge an amazing relationship in that five minutes you're allowed, um, that's going to change everything. But, you know, the frameworks you utilize to to tackle these issues are absolutely pivotal. Absolutely. So if you, you fail that meeting, you don't do well, the person doesn't buy, the person doesn't invest, but that's okay because you can take that, refine that, tweak it, and it just becomes a one of a, a thousand iterations to all of a sudden you're the, the black belt of sales or the black belt of your trade or the black belt manager or whatever particular thing manifests itself in that sort of pinnacle of skills as we say every black belt started off as a white belt and you know you in any any journey you stay you know every single journey starts with a single step so you're, you're always going to you're always going to start off you're not going to start off as a master yeah, so it's absolutely. always a process but you got to start you've got to start that's the important thing absolutely so it's been a fantastic conversation. I'm obviously I love where this is going. I think this dovetails really nicely into our, our uh, series of rapid fire questions. Are you uh, ready to go? Sure. All right. Fantastic. So um, 
just for any new listeners and obviously just for yourself as well. So I've got a series of questions that I like to ask my, uh, my interviewees. Um, there, there's no right or wrong answer. It's a, it's a quick question. Your answer can be long or short or, yep. or whatever it is. So um, here we go. So the first question is, and I think we might know the answer to this, but I still got to ask it anyways, is uh, what book has the most changed your life? And love if you can place us to as, excuse me, love if you could uh, place us as to where you read it and what context did it change everything? Yep. So Maxwell Maltz, <laughs> who wrote The New Psycho-Cybernetics, um, I listened to it on Audible. Um, yeah, absolute game changer. Maybe well, any other ones other than uh, other than that one that might have been that sort of the runner-up or second or third place? Oh, Plenty. Um, I oh, any of the any books by Maxwell Malt, Maxwell Maltz. I've really enjoyed Tim Ferriss's books. Even recently, reading Tools, Tactics, and Routines of Billionaires and Successful People. I forget mm-hmm. the exact title of it. Um, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, I yeah, off the top of my head, those those are probably the most pertinent ones. Yeah, absolutely. I got to I got to thank you as well too for the book recommendations. This is the uh, Psychocybernetics is a book I've read as well too, and I've I realized that a lot of the other books I've read on that sort of idea mm. of of mindset really I think were redistillations of his book, and there all all the books out there are great, but his I think being one of the originals is you can't beat the classics. You really can. So that was excellent. Um, so who's been the greatest influence on your life growing up? Uh, it could be somebody you didn't know or maybe some other prominent figure in your life if it, somebody wasn't directly in, in your life. Hmm. Well, the most easy characters to identify as having a monumental impact on me, like a lot of kids, a lot of guys I think growing up, I mean Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Lee were mm-hmm. monumental figures for me because they, particularly Bruce Lee, embodied like the martial arts lifestyle um, which was something I just I was obsessed with from as a kid. I was always obsessed with martial arts. And Arnold Schwarzenegger just is a very charismatic figure. Mm. I, mean, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is an amazing case study on success because you know a guy that moves to from his homeland to America and becomes a world class bodybuilder, a politician, mm. an entrepreneur, a businessman, um, and really like he's a person that embodies in a very physical way self determination and success and just willingness to. To put to invest everything possible into achieving an outcome. Absolutely, and I know you've met him as well too. So I got to ask: yeah. somebody has met him? Is he is physically? Uh, you know, I'll be honest. I've looks- met so many of my heroes where I've when I've seen them in person. I've been like, wow, this person's so much smaller. But Arnold Schwarzenegger is huge. <laughs> <laughs> I met like I, I met Ronnie Coleman, and he's also immense, but he's nowhere near as big as I thought he'd be. I mean, yeah. you know, like he's under six foot, I believe, but. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a very physically imposing man, even at, even in today's day and age, mm. um, when his bodybuilding career is like way behind him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, his hand is uh, he, he's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> um, what gives you a disproportionate return on investment of your time and energy in your life? Easy one, um, I would say jiu-jitsu, simply yeah. because for me it it's it's holistic in its healing. Um, I get to exercise myself physically. It's very therapeutic for the mind. I mean, I go, I come away from a jiu-jitsu session so many times. I've, I've never ever regretted a jiu-jitsu session. But plenty of times, I've wrestled with the as I would have illustrated in this podcast. I've wrestled whether I should walk in or not. And every single time I've had those feelings and I've gone in, I've come out of it completely refreshed. Often I go in, I go into jiu-jitsu, pondering a problem of you know varying natures, and I come out with a very clear head on how to tackle it. Mm. Um, and I, I attribute that at least to myself as being, you know, again, being sort of an anxious person who 
can easily overwhelm myself mentally if I allow it to, being, being able to have a tool available that can just clear away the cobwebs in my brain is just absolutely uh, vital. Yeah. So, and, and, apart, and beyond that, of the physical and mental uh, components, the sport that I engage in and that provides all these benefits, I get a community. Like I've got some amazing friends and people who I consider my family through this network. And it's a community. It's a community that once you become involved and you've suddenly got a thousand friends. So it's an incredible thing. Yeah. Do you meditate at all? Do you have a meditative practice? I do. I don't meditate as much as I'd like yeah. to. I like the idea of meditating. I, it's one of those uh, things I wish I'd do more of. I'm a big fan of Headspace. Yeah. I know you're an absolute yeah. slayer when it comes to Headspace. Um, I really should be meditating far more often, but I definitely see the benefits of it to being able to, so for me, at least I, I look at jiu-jitsu for me as meditation because moving meditation, it's yeah. moving meditation. It's more like getting into that flow state yeah. because I think I forget where I read it, but one of the, one, almost one of the goals in life really is to find an exercise or an activity in you that allows you to go into that flow state because mm. that is when you really suspend a lot of, uh, neural, I guess, mental processes that, it just you can just discard those and yeah. just exist in the moment and be present. Yeah, well, I ask that only as well too because I know we've obviously talked. I'm, I'm infinitely fascinated by jujitsu, just yeah. the, the, the the physical dynamics of it. But I know, like we spoke about too, when you're in the middle of a roll, you have a few minutes where you can't mm. think about anything else, and you're in the flow state. So you have such a uh, uh, you become so in touch with the subtle movement on the ripples of yourself and that other person to become in tune with that becomes a moving meditation aspect. And, um, for me and what I find really fascinating is I look back on, I've always gone to the gym. I've been going to the gym mm. since I was, oh, before I could even actually go into the gym technically, yeah. <laughs> you know, 15, 14, 15, 16. And I realized out of it, as I think I found the gym for me, it was largely therapy as well. Because yeah. when you have a weight in your hands or, or over top of your head, you're forced to be in the moment in that present uh, in that presence and those subtle ripples of of the quality of of your mind quality of your state um and that's where I think as well too you very much reflect in yourself and see a lot of how our, our cognitive processes are wired. You've mm. obviously found a, a moving meditation through jiu jitsu I've found it through the gym and more recently headspace but. absolutely I mean I think one of the pertinent things about headspace is and meditation, in essence, is about being present and learning to just be in the moment, exist in the moment. And so with any activity like jiu-jitsu, for me, you've, I can't be anywhere else but the moment when I have, you know, a 100-kilo person yeah. trying to yeah. squash my head. Yeah, absolutely. I have, to, I have to be there and be experiencing it and finding solution there on the mat. And um, the same as when you're lifting weights. If you've got a, a bar r- loaded up with weights above you, you know, you have to be, mm. you have to be thinking and completely in that moment, lest you be crushed by the weight. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as well too, one thing I really want to add to this conversation as well mm. too is, and as I'll continue to, uh, I'll continue to preach is this idea of meditation as well. Yeah. I, think, I think the area as well too, is you obviously, you're very, very self-aware. I've talked about, you probably have a bit of an advantage in terms of that. But the thing is as well too, it's not other people can achieve what you've achieved in your mindfulness and mm-hmm. being able to unlock those aspects. They just have to meditate. I think most people probably feel that anxiousness. I know I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago and, and feeling incredibly anxious, but not, know, not knowing why they felt anxious. Mm. And so really try to encourage them to, to meditate, to be able to sit on that, relax, sit back, try to understand where that stems from. And when you can stem from that, you can understand usually where the well of that is, what thoughts, processes, beliefs you have wired that are causing that anxiety or that, that stress in this guy's point, um, you can really begin, I think, to, to bulldoze through that and start to put, rebuild these frameworks to allow you to, you know, 
uh, help you achieve whatever you want to achieve. So I agree, absolutely, okay. amazing. Um, so we probably have it's probably a few answers to this too. But uh, what mantra or inspirational quote has most changed your life, and why? And I'd love if you could even if you remember where did you first hear it. <laughs> I'm gonna sound so preachy, but Maxwell Maltz's. Um, I love his quote, our self-image strongly held essentially determines what we become. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at least what I've really strived to illustrate here is that really what it's about, and I, I learned that through the, you know, again, the new Psycho-7X by Maxwell Maltz. What I really learned was that, you know, how you view yourself um, is really going to largely determine how you go about in the world. Um, you know, you are your ultimate barrier at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So by eradicating that barrier, you 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 know, withdraw from those limitations that are ultimately self-imposed. So I think that was so vital for me because at some point, I reached a point in my life where I'd built up all these barriers and they were all self-imposed. They were all like, instead of building scaffolding to success, Mm. I was just putting barriers up after barriers. And these are all things I just had to deconstruct over time. And, you know, we've all got our own challenges and demons, so to speak, and things that plague us and cause us anguish. It's really important to be able to be honest and self-aware as you keep touching on, be self-aware to realize that, and address it and so again I think that's you know when it comes down to how you view yourself that's going to affect your interactions with the world if you you know if you carry yourself as someone you don't value yourself and love yourself and appreciate yourself that is really going to be people going to pick up on that and perceive that and you basically make yourself almost subservient to the world and because you just don't value yourself Mm, absolutely um tell us a bit about your morning routine um I'm a terrible morning person so (laughs) Um, my morning routine consists of trying to get myself into the day, de- into the day with, uh, I wake up depending on, depending on the stage of the year, I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will, um, I was until I heard recently through further studies that it's bad for intermittent fasting, but I was, I generally used to wake up and have a coffee, have a coffee, jump straight in the shower, get my clothes ready for work and head off. Uh, various stages I have experimental meditation and I believe every single one of my days has been better dramatically when I meditate at the start of the day. Mm. Uh, something I definitely need to get back onto properly. Um, but yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Brenton, I really appreciate your time. Just for uh, everybody listening, where can they stay up to date? And especially too, with something we haven't talked too much, but I'd love if you could just tell us even a little bit about your podcast as well too that you've recently started. <laughs> sure. Um, so I'm one of the co-hosts with McGregor McNair and Steve Phillips on a podcast called The Unknown Strength Podcast. So essentially our aim is to provide insights into the fight game, competition, training, and at least my particular angle is the mindset. So I am very interested in the mm. why. I want to, I, I really like to dissect and interrogate fighters and athletes as to you know, what motivates them to succeed, what motivates them to do their sport, what are they looking, looking to do and achieve, and what are they thinking when they're in these difficult you know, crisis situations of fights and in combat. So you can go to unknownstrength.com. That's where our... Um, podcast is held so it's also available on iTunes and uh, Soundwave so that's that's that is essentially born from myself and McGregor McNair who have a curiosity in how people prepare for competition and training and high performance um, sports. Absolutely. And I think as well too, one thing I really want to go on, I think I think I love about it as well too, is sort of back to our conversation today that you might not be a, a fight, you might not be a fighter in terms of an athlete or something yeah. like that. But if you can still apply the same fundamentals from a nutrition, from a mindset and from a training point of view yeah. that these individuals use to be elite in their own area, you can't help but be better in those areas. So it's success leaves clues and 
you have to follow those clues to really lead to your own success as well too. And not to mention, you guys are great hosts as well too. So I definitely <laughs> strong, you. and I'll make sure I do link as well too on the YT podcast Appreciate Facebook it. page uh, to make sure you do go a chance to check it out and have a go. Um, Brenton, thank you so much again for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I think this is probably round one of many more future rounds. <laughs> I know we've uh, lots more to dive into that we could today, but thanks again so much for your time today. Appreciate no it. No problems at all. Thank you for having me, Dustin. Thanks, man. Cheers. Hi, everyone, and thank you again for joining me for today's chat. Please make sure you jump on Facebook to quickly like and share this podcast episode. If you're not already following me, please take another quick minute to hit that like button so you can stay up to date with all new podcast episodes, exciting announcements, and other things going on. You can find me on Facebook at Project Y2, that's at Project Y and the number two, and you can also follow me on LinkedIn if you're there. Don't forget to share and rate this on wherever you find your podcast episodes, and I look forward to having you join me again for our next Y2 podcast.